Good afternoon, America, and welcome to the Dean's List. I'm Dean Bowen. You are listening to America Out Loud Talk Radio, and happy Groundhog's Day. Uh, Isn't this, you know, one of our favorite holidays? I mean, this is it. This is the day that we uh, we learn if if winter is going to keep going uh, or or stop. Uh, We had a heavy dose of winter this week in Michigan, so. You know, we're kind of hoping that it's uh, that it's over. Groundhog's Day uh, is probably one of the one of the strangest days ever, isn't it? It was on this day in 1887 uh, that the first official Groundhog Day is observed in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Punxsutawney. Uh, it's a holiday that, like. Uh, so many American traditions, it has its roots and its customs brought here by immigrants. So it's it's a holiday born in Europe, uh, but brought to America and given some American flavor. Weather lore holds that if a groundhog emerges from his burrow on this day and sees his shadow, he will be frightened back into his home and winter will last six more weeks. Bum, bum, bum. But if it's an overcast day and he doesn't see his shadow, he will not be frightened. He will not scurry away and spring will come early. Why February 2nd, you ask? The day falls halfway between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. Many ancient cultures observed rituals that marked the mid-season. They also watch for the reappearance of hibernating animals, such as bears and badgers, as a natural sign that winter was coming to an end. We all want winter to come to an end, don't we? Yes, we do. Early Christians in Europe observed February 2nd as Candlemas, the day on which priests blessed candles and distributed them to the faithful. A superstition arose that if the weather was fair on Candlemas, the second half of the winter would be cold and stormy. And here is the um, here's the old Scottish saying: If Candlemas Day is bright and clear, there will be two winters in this year. <laughs> I mean that uh, sounds dreadful. In Germany, it was said that if Candlemas Day was bright enough to make a hedgehog cast a shadow, he would go back into hibernation until the spring equinox, meaning six more weeks of cold. Many of Pennsylvania's early settlers were, of course, Germans, and they brought the custom with them. By 1887, Groundhog Day had become an official celebration in the town of Punxsutawney. Every year a groundhog named Punxsutawney Phil is pulled from his heated burrow so he can look for his shadow and predict the weather. Uh, Punxsutawney Phil is the nation's most famous forecaster, but he's not alone. Did you know there were other groundhogs out there forecasting the weather? Uh, General Beauregard Lee near Atlanta. He, they, there's another famous one, General Beauregard. And then there's Staten Island Chuck in New York City, and they help keep the tradition going. Staten Island Chuck. Staten Island Chuck Schumer. You think that's his last name? Schumer? So there it is, uh, my friends. 
there is the history of this uh, this vaunted holiday that we celebrate uh, with its uh, roots in Christian Europe. Uh, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know. We're just hoping that uh, we're hoping that the groundhog doesn't doesn't become frightened and scurry away. That's what we 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 don't want him to see a shadow. However, we 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 would like some other individuals to to see their shadow and become frightened and and scurry away. Uh, you know, we would like those that um, uh, that just decide. You know, some some of our leaders that just decide. You know, we, we think it'd be great if we uh, if we you know paid families to start going to school. You know, we we talked about this yesterday. Five hundred dollars. You know, we'll, we'll we'll start paying families if they have a kindergartner, they have the freshman. Uh, we're we're going to give them five hundred dollars if that student will be in class. You know, ninety percent of the time. You know, while the the epidemic is that students are absent ten percent of the time. I mean, that's that you know. So all we're doing, you know, by paying them to, to be in class ninety percent of the time is just maintain the status quo of this of this uh, uh, epidemic. I mean, that's what they're calling it. They're they're referring it to the epidemic the epidemic of the missing. This category of of missing students, and we just wish that we had. That we had leaders that actually, you know, put some thought to to some of the bills that they were that they were putting together. Um, you know, speaking of bills that 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 we question, things that we wonder about. There's this this strange case out of Montana. I'm sure you've you've heard of it. Uh, this this headline just from a couple of days ago says Montana governor says state followed law in case where. Uh, teen was removed from parents, and this this teen is a girl, you know, fourteen year old who who says she's a boy. And this this case is just strange. I, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna highlight some of the things in the article, but there's just I don't know. There's just some things that don't add up. Uh, Montana's Republican governor uh, said Monday this week that his state followed state law in a case where a, a teenager was removed from her parents and she identified as, as a male. Uh, a Montana couple accused the state of kidnapping their teenage daughter after she began identifying as a boy. Uh, this was reported on Monday. Krista and Todd Colstead said their 14-year-old daughter was removed from their custody and sent to a Wyoming facility where they were unable to contact her directly. Uh, and this was their uh, their post. The state of Montana has kidnapped a teenage girl from her parents to transition her gender in another state, subverting Montana's laws against gender transition for minors. Um, okay, this was a friend of the family, and this is coming from Scoop. The problems allegedly began in August when the parents got a call that their daughter had expressed suicidal ideations at school. I mean, well, that's good. I mean, it's not good that she's expressing, you know, the suicidal thoughts. It's good that the school contacted the parents. I mean, I, I think we're surprised by that. I mean, normally, you know, schools try to hide information from parents. 
That night, a Montana child and family service caseworker showed up at her door. During the caseworker's visit, the teen claimed to have ingested painkillers and toilet bowl cleaner to try to kill herself. This led to a hospital visit where her blood work showed no evidence of those toxins. Hmm. Okay. However, hospital workers noted in paperwork that the teen identified as male and wanted to be called Leo. Her parents objected, but hospital staff told the parents to respect their daughter's new identity. Huh. All right. So she wants to be called Leo. Mom and dad don't want to call her Leo. The hospital comes along and says, yeah, you need to call her Leo. You need to respect this new identity. Okay. So it's happening at the medical profession level and not at the, uh, the, the educational level. All right. So this isn't happening in a public school. This is happening um, at the hospital. Medical professionals are, are telling the parents this. Eventually, the state removed the teen from her parents' custody and moved her to a facility in Wyoming, the parents said. Police showed up at their home to serve them with custody papers, saying the reason was that the teen's parents were unable or refusing to provide medical care, which her mother said is not true. So this is this is the question, you know, what, what medical care are the parents refusing to, to provide? Uh, this, you know, we, we just need more information. It has the hospital said the parents refuse to provide, um, you know, gender treatment, you know, care, gender medical care, you know, you know, gender transitioning medical care. And, and therefore the parents are unfit. Is that what we've got here? Uh, we, we just need more information. I mean, you know, what is the medical care that the parents are refusing to provide? The parents said they were not allowed to communicate directly with their daughter while she was in Wyoming. In September, the teen was returned to Montana and now lives in a group home. So I, I guess she didn't, she came back to Montana, but wasn't allowed to go back and be with her parents. And so she's in a group home. So the, the state of Montana just takes the child because of of a medical that she's not getting you know medical care. Uh, it's just something doesn't add up here. Uh, I don't. Mm. However, earlier this month, Child and Family Services said it planned to place the teen in the care of her birth mother in Canada. All right, so dad lives in Montana. He, you know he's got a, a new wife. Birth mother lives in Canada. Uh, birth mother who has not been a part of the teen's life and whose, whose children have made allegations of physical abuse against her, according to the parents. Uh, just mm. Our family has been destroyed by this. We have little to no contact with Jennifer and our rights as her parents have been trampled on. Krista told Redux, Krista must be maybe stepmom. Okay. The couple defied a judge's order to maintain silence on the case. So now we've got, we've got a gag order on this. The judge said, you, what is going on here in Montana? Quote, we will continue to fight. We will never give up on our daughter and for what we believe is morally right. 
We will continue to tell our story, even though we are currently in contempt of court, and try to keep other families from going through this. Our greatest fear is that our daughter is now going to become a victim of this system and eventually take her own life. Uh, okay, this is just, this is strange. Uh, you know, we've got this this situation where they just, they, they, they pulled this girl because of a refusal a refusal to provide medical care, and but they're not telling us what that medical care is. That's what we need to know specifically. And why are they taking the child to Wyoming and then bringing the child back to Montana, but, but not reuniting the child with the family? Just this seems like there's something more going on here. Montana, or uh, yeah, Montana governor, who is a Republican, uh, said the state had, had reviewed the case and concluded the state policy and law was followed. Here's what he posted on X. To give them their best shot at reaching their full potential, children deserve to grow up in happy, healthy homes with loving families. Sadly, this ideal is not always realized. Unfortunately, our society finds children whose life, health, and well-being are at serious risk from abuse and neglect, and only as a last resort should they be removed from their home. So, as that happened here, you know, you know, Governor, I, has this as this child has she gone through serious abuse and neglect? Uh, is her life, health, and well-being at serious risk? And was this the last resort? Uh, you know, because her parents were unable or refusing to provide medical care, this was the last resort. We don't even know what that medical care is. Um, I mean, you know, there, there was a, you know, they took her to the hospital to discover that, you know, she was lying about ingesting painkillers and toilet bowl cleaner. Uh, and so my question is, is the medical care not being provided? Is that, you know, gender care? You know, because that's not medical care. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not a doctor, all right? But I, I'm just common sense says that's not medical care. Mm -mm. So uh, this Republican governor in Montana, what is he all about? That That's the question here. He asked Lieutenant Governor Kristen Juris, an experienced attorney, constitutional conservative mother and grandmother to review the child welfare case. The lieutenant governor personally examined case documents and consulted with the director of Montana's Department of Public Health and Human Services. She concluded that the, that the department and the court, quote, have followed state policy and law and their handling of this tragic case. Uh, okay, so the governor has asked the lieutenant governor to continue monitoring the case as it uh, progresses forward. Um, okay, so this is there, there's just some odd stuff happening here in Montana, and and I feel like we're we're missing some big pieces of information. You know, namely, you know, what is the medical care that's not being provided? You know, I, I think that's that's an important piece to the puzzle. And uh, I, I think we need some more information here. I, I'm going to I'm going to stay on this story 
we'll, we'll continue to follow it and monitor it and see where it goes. It just seems like there are strange things afoot in Montana. Uh, you know, I don't, you know, I guess according to the governor and the lieutenant governor, who are Republicans, but that, that doesn't mean a lot. According to, to, to these two, state law was followed. You know, there was, I guess, uh, life, health, and well-being at serious risk. You know, and we saw, we, we've seen in other places, you know, in California, we see this happening in Maine, where, um, you know, life, health, and well-being being at risk also includes, you know, when a parent decides to not affirm the child's choice of gender. So is that what's, you know, are we seeing that unfold here in Montana? You know, if the doctors, you know, the medical professionals tell the, the mom and the dad that they need to respect their daughter's new identity, which is to say, you know, if she wants to be called Leo, you should respect that and call her Leo. And if you're not, then, you know, perhaps you are putting her life, health, and well-being at serious risk. You know, so we have this upside down uh, philosophy that unless you you go along with the, the child's, you know, pretend imagination, and I know it sounds callous when I say it that way, uh, but, but there's, you know, the, the, the child thinks, you know, she's a boy and, and we're going to go along with that. Uh, we have to we have to get to the to the deeper issue here instead of just pretending, yes, that she's a boy when in fact she's not because biologically it's impossible. All right, I'm up against the break here. We'll pick it up on the other side. You're listening to The Dean's List on America Out Loud Talk Radio. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. You've all heard Dr. McCullough and others share over and over the value of keeping your sinuses cleansed. It's a smart move all year, but even more so when we're cooped up inside. It's not really open for debate any longer. Those that live smart and live well pay attention to nasal and oral hygiene. Cofix RX has just the tools for the job with our nasal and throat cleanse. Click the Cofix RX banner on AmericaOutloud.shop to get 20% off your entire order. That's right, AmericaOutloud.shop. Use coupon code OUTLOUD. That's coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off your entire order. Use Cofix RX because it works.
Welcome back to The Dean's List. I'm Dean Bowen. You are listening to America Out Loud Talk Radio. You can find us here Monday through Friday at the 2 p.m. Eastern time slot. Of course, you can listen at americaoutloud.news on the world-class media player. You can download the app for your Apple, iPhone, or Alexa. That, that's that's how I like to listen. I like to listen on the app. I like to listen live on the app. Uh, you can find us on iHeartRadio. And of course, you know, the show's going to podcasts. So, you know, you can just find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are uh we're 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 happy, we're honored, we're grateful that that you're on board. Uh before we fire up segment two, I need to wish a happy birthday to Nadia. Today, Nadia turns nine. Happy birthday, Nadia. This is your last year of single digits. Nine, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Let's uh let's make it a good one. All right. Just get out there and uh and make it fantastic. So happy birthday to Nadia on Groundhog's Day. All right. Um so we're just gonna keep our eye on Montana. Uh we're gonna keep our eye on Utah. There are things afoot in in Utah that uh, I think it's important that that we pay attention to. The Utah legislature passed a ban last week uh, that involved uh, bathroom usage in public buildings. Uh, the, the ban is that, you know, boys who are dressed up like girls can't use the girls' bathroom. All right, that's the ban. And vice versa. Girls that are dressed up as boys, that doesn't mean they get to use the boys' bathroom. Uh, lawmakers passed the ban called the, quote, sex-based designations for privacy, anti-bullying, and women's opportunities. And it passed on a 58 to 16 vote, mostly along party lines. And I, I, you can guess who the two parties are that, that voted for and against. Uh, I don't know what it is. I just don't know what it is about the Democrats and how they uh, how they don't want to, uh, you know, support you know women here. The new law prohibits uh, people who are dressed up as the opposite sex from using the bathrooms of the opposite sex in public buildings, such as K twelve schools and government buildings. Under the bill, any new public building must have a single occupancy bathroom. The bill also encourages the state to add more single bathrooms to existing buildings. All right, so we're going to, you know, throw in these these unisex, you know, bathrooms here, these family bathrooms type that you see them called. And it's just, you know, a one-stall deal. And there you go. All right. You can be dressed up like a like a woman or like a like a lady and be a man. You can go in there and use that bathroom. I mean, that's it's a good solution. The bill also establishes that the state's legal definition of male and female is based on their reproductive systems rather than their gender identity. This is brilliant. Now we're now we're getting somewhere. All right. Now we're now we're entering into the realm of common sense. Yep. You are a male or you are a female based upon your reproduction system, right? Not based upon how you feel, you know, not, not based upon the mood that you're in. 
based solely upon uh, your ability or lack thereof. I I, I, I was going to say your ability or lack thereof to reproduce, but you know that's not that's not accurate. It's based upon you know your chromosome setup. Uh, are you a double X or are you an XY? All right, because if you're a double X, guess what? You're a female. Uh, and if you're an XY, then you're a male. Um, you know, I, Riley Gaines, I I love this. October 10th, you know, she was talking about this as being, you know, Women's Day, you know, because it's, you know, 10-10. October, the 10th month, the 10th day, you know, two Xs, you know, double X. That That's your that's your chromosome. That's what makes you female. Uh, and and that's that's dictated by our reproductive system, and not not by our feelings. This is genius to me. I mean, it's it it's upsetting that we have to have a bill that establishes the legal definition of what is male and what is female, because of the confusion that's being promulgated, you know, by certain individuals who are members of a certain party who who just you know go go around saying I can't really define what a woman is you know and, and which got you know Matt Walsh to thinking you know maybe we should you know start you know create this documentary let's go around the country and let's ask this question you know what's a woman and now here we have a state Utah I don't know maybe other states have defined this as well but we finally have a state that has legally, felt the need to define male and female. Uh, and, and this is the point we've come to, my friends. Well, I mean, we're here. It is, I don't know, sometimes I think it's, you know, we've hit this point of stupidity where we have to offer a legal definition of male and female. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but here we are. Here we are. And so we're doing this now in, in Utah. The bill has been sent to the desk of Governor Spencer Cox, a Republican. However, the governor has not indicated whether he plans to sign the bill. Uh, here's what uh, State Representative Kira Berklin had to say on X, and she's the bill's main sponsor. She said, let's be clear. Sexual assault knows no boundaries. Keeping men from women's spaces is an appropriate and much needed boundary in Utah and across America. And it's just common sense, isn't it? Is it uh, and I don't know why the Democrats don't, don't see it this way. Brooklyn said she recognized it was a challenging and sensitive topic and that she had met with survivors of sexual assault and parents of children her legislation could affect. I don't think we wait until an eight-year-old is raped or molested by a predator, she said. I think we act in good faith, with respect, finding accommodations that show compassion all along the way. And, and she made that statement in a legislative uh, committee hearing earlier this month. And, and you know, she's right. All right. I guess we, we respect the you know, that some men want to dress up like women, that's fine. You know, do what you want to do. You know, but we're going to create this bathroom for you then. All right. We're going to the trouble of and the expense 
of you know creating this in, entire space just for you. In some instances, th- these buildings are going to have to be reworked. Uh, th- there's going to have to be a, a, a special bathroom put in just for this person who wants to dress up like a woman. And as a woman, he, you know, in his mind, he feels like, you know, he can't use the men's bathroom. So he's got to have this room all of his own. All right. Are, are they going to be happy with this? Because again, there's a lot of, a lot of labor that's going into this, a lot of time, a lot of expense uh, to, to accommodate the feelings of a particular subgroup, a very small subgroup, mind you. Uh, you know, but we feel like in, in her statement that uh, we have to, with respect, find accommodations that show compassion along the way, because you know we don't want to be seen as 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 a, as a society that's not compassionate. I mean, how, you know, we don't want to risk being viewed as as being someone who doesn't care. Well, we all care. I mean, Americans are a compassionate people. We're we're a compassionate society. We do care. Um, you know, but do we need to, to, I guess, go out of our way to, to build this extra space? I mean, there's a lot of work being done here. There's a lot of labor. There's a lot of expense. But yet we're still doing it to show that we care. Uh, but is it going to be received? You know, is it going to be, no, that's not what we want. We don't want that space. We want to have the right to be able to use the women's bathroom because we're women. You know, when in fact they're not women, they're men who dress up like women. You know, so this is the question. Are they going to are, are they going to receive this in good faith? And are they going to appreciate the work, the labor, and the expense of, of creating this brand new room just for them? You know, are they gonna appreciate that? And are they gonna are they gonna use it with oh, I'm just I feel loved. I just feel so loved and accepted. Here, this bathroom is built here just for me. Or are they not going to feel loved and accepted? And are they going to then, you know, demand their entitlement to be able to to go into the the room with the women? I mean, because by golly, they're women, right? Uh, Are are we seeing the um, uh, where this confusion sets in and what confusion does to us? As a people, it just it makes us incompetent. It makes us inept. It, it does. Confusion breeds uh, ineptness. It it breeds bad decisions. It um, it it breeds an inability to cognitive cognitively function well. And and you know so here we are. Uh, Riley Gaines, uh, she is. Um, Chiming in on this, of course, you know, we know her as a former college swimmer. Uh, she has turned women's sports activist. And, you know, we, we, we like her here because she's got a powerful, booming voice on this issue. Uh, on X, she thanked uh, Brooklyn for her leadership on this bill. Uh, and then she said, all eyes on Governor Cox, Republican. Will he veto it? like he did the women's sports bill in Utah. Keep the pressure on. Men don't belong in women's bathrooms. So in 2022, this governor, Governor Cox, a Republican, vetoed a bill that would have barred uh, 
males from competing on girls' sports teams in schools. Uh, his veto was ultimately overridden by the legislature, and the bill went into effect nonetheless, but the governor vetoed it. Uh, he he pulled a, a DeWine on us, you know, before DeWine was DeWine, I guess. Uh, I mean, maybe DeWine pulled a cox. I don't know. Um, I mean, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Governor Cox vetoed this bill in 2022. So Riley's saying, okay, is this going to happen again? You know, is he going to revisit this, this situation here the way he did in 2022? But there's hope on the horizon. Uh, last year, Governor Cox changed his approach when he signed a ban on transgender medical interventions for children. All right, so that was a good move. You know, maybe the, the governor's eyes are opening up a little bit. Um, uh, I guess we'll see. You know, we'll we'll see what this governor does here. This, um, this just came out a couple of days ago. You know, so of course he's got some time to decide. Uh, but how are the Democrats responding to this? I mean, we saw that this this bill was passed uh, pretty close to party lines, 58 to 16. Uh, you folks in Utah have done a decent job of creating a, a super majority out there in your state. Um, and so here's here's how the Democrats replied to this. They, they're in unity. And they're all wearing black. Utah Democrats are wearing all black to mourn the passing of House Bill 257 and House Bill 261. They're going to mourn this. Uh, they're in mourning today because this this state has said, uh, you know, men cannot use women's bathrooms. And also, we're going to define, you know, male and female as as being according to their to their reproductive system, and not in how they feel. And the Democrats are in mourning. Uh, they're uh, they're wearing all black in solidarity of their mourning. Uh, House Bill two fifty seven bans men from girls' bathrooms in schools. And then House Bill 261, which we didn't really, you know, talk about here in this article, that bans uh, DEI from public education. So these are two genius bills, all right? These are two bills that are designed to protect children, all right? The one bill is going to protect them physically. The other bill is going to protect them mentally, all right? Because when you ban men from girls' bathrooms, you're protecting the girls physically. And when you ban diversity, equity, and inclusion from public education, you protect the kids mentally and probably emotionally and maybe spiritually, uh, you know, and, and, and maybe other ways. You can just take another word and add an L-Y to it. I mean, it's probably going to protect them. But the Democrats are in mourning. They're dressed in black. And so I ask you, uh, Why? Why do the our, our Democrat representatives in Congress, who I'm drawing a distinction from, you know, from everyday Democrats that, you know, that are hardworking people that just are duped and vote for people that have a D next to their name, 
you know, I'm drawing that distinction. Why do these these people in Congress that have a D next to the name, why do they hate children? Oh, Dean, that's a strong statement. Well, why are you saying they hate children? Well, they're upset that we're not letting the, the boys in the girls' bathrooms. How can you be upset about that? And, and they're upset that we're not going to allow this, this filth of diversity, equity, inclusion, this racism, this, this garbage taught in public education. This, this bill might have saved Utah. Uh, the, these two bills, hand in hand, may have saved public education in Utah. All right, we, we're watching this mass exodus. It's a quiet mass exodus from public schools. Utah might have saved themselves. You'd think that the teachers' unions would be all about this. You'd think that they would have the foresight to realize these two bills are saving their schools single-handedly, or since there's two bills, maybe double-handedly. I, I, I don't know. You, 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 you would think that the people in charge of education would realize, oh, man, this is, this is going to save us here. But, but they don't. They perpetually continue to have this desire to self-inflict wounds upon themselves. I guess that's, you know, doublespeak. Why aren't their eyes opened? You'd think that they would want to, you know, perpetuate their profession by, by populating their schools with kids. And the way to do that would be to protect those kids physically and emotionally, mentally. Um. You know, but we're not. Oh, all right. All right. Well, good job, Utah. That's what we've got to say about this. We'll see if Cox signs or vetoes. All right. We'll pick this up on the other side of the break. You're listening to the Dean's List on America Out Loud Talk Radio. When God, through his grace and mercy, gave us free will, the will of the people was to live freely. To that end, we fight for the liberty of all at a time when global tyranny threatens us as never before in mankind's history. This vision is manifest at AmericaOutloud.news, a site for all who cherish free will and freedom. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. Loud. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order.
Welcome back to the Dean's List. I'm Dean Bowen. You are listening to America Out Loud Talk Radio. All right. So we're going to shift gears, uh, not completely, uh, just a little bit. I mean, we're still talking about leaders. Uh, in this case, not congressional leaders. So we're going to take a shift to the Supreme Court. Yesterday, we made note that it was the anniversary of the first ever convening of the Supreme Court on February 1st. Uh, I think the year was 1790. Well, here we are all these years later. And I'm holding this article entitled, Liberal Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor says she is traumatized by rulings from conservative wing of the court. Yes, you heard it correctly, my friends. Sotomayor, a liberal Supreme Court justice who was nominated to the court by Obama, said recently that the conservative wing of the court traumatizes her with their rulings. So I'm wondering, and, and this article here is written by Michael Lachance, and he's also wondering, he, he asks, do you think Justice Clarence Thomas has traumatized when Democrats and the media accuse him of being a corrupt criminal? You know, which seems to happen regularly. Or how about Justice Kavanaugh? Do you suppose he was traumatized when Democrats and the media accused him of being a rapist? Oh. Uh, but Justice Sonia Sotomayor is traumatized by their rulings. All right. Uh, at So this was Monday. She's at an appearance at the University of California, Berkeley Law School. All right. So she's in left land. Uh, Sotomayor was asked how she copes with the consistently conservative rulings from, from the court. Judge. Judge Sotomayor, how do you cope? How do you cope with, with the, the consistent conservative rulings from this court? All right. Is that a legitimate question? It is, I guess. Here's what Sotomayor said. Every loss truly traumatizes me. But I get up the next morning. Uh, she said in response to the question, the San Francisco Chronicle reported the crowd of about 1,300 students applauded. What a fantastic woman. She's truly traumatized, but she gets up every morning and she goes and she faces that trauma. She looks that trauma square in the eye and she says, you trauma will not defeat me today. I am Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And 1,300 lefties applaud. In her remarks, she criticized her originalist colleagues whom she said have come up with, quote, new ways to interpret the Constitution, changing rulings that, quote, some of us believed were well-established. All right. Now, here it is. The, the left, they are, they're, they're famous for, for accusing the right of doing what they themselves do across the board. That's how it happens. So this this judge is uh, this justice is accusing her her originalist colleagues on the court to find new ways to interpret the Constitution. No, judge, it's not new to interpret the Constitution as it was originally intended. That's not new. There, there, there's no interpret no new interpretation there. 
That's the way it used to be interpreted. That's the way it should be interpreted. That's the way it was interpreted from, you know, February 1st, 1790, until the left took over and decided that they would interpret, you know, the First Amendment the way they saw fit, that, um, that, that in fact, uh, the Establishment Clause uh, d- didn't mean what, it, what, what, what we think it meant. The Establishment Clause uh, now means that if, if a student prays in a public school, then Congress is establishing a religion there because that's a public school and they're allowing that. Okay, that's not what that clause meant, but but Justice Sotomayor, your uh your your leftist um ancestors decided that that they would rewrite the constitution that they would in your own words find new ways to interpret the constitution. That's already happened. You, you know, you you, and you can say that you know to thirteen hundred lefties at the you know California Berkeley School of Law, and they're all going to say, "Yeah, you're right." Those conservative justices, they're finding new ways to interpret the Constitution because they they live in an echo chamber, and they just repeat what they hear you say. It doesn't matter that it's lies. I mean, it certainly isn't true. Uh, you, you know, the, these justices are not finding new ways to interpret the Constitution. That is not a truthful statement. You know, they're called originalists for a reason, you know, because they believe in the original content, the original language, and that's how they interpret it as originalists. There, there's nothing new about this. But again, these 1,300 students, they don't, they don't know any different. I mean, they're being taught out there at Berkeley. Uh, you know, they they're clueless, and so yeah, they're going to uh, they're going to applaud you. And when you say you're truly traumatized, but you get up every morning, they're going to get out there and cheer you on. When in fact, they have no idea probably what you even said. Uh, you know, and then she says that that this court has changed rulings that some of us believed were well established. Um, you know, like killing babies. The six to three conservative court has had an eventful couple of terms, making its mark on some of the most consequential aspects of everyday life from overturning the federal right to an abortion uh, for overturning the federal right to, to kill unborn babies, which Sotomayor believed that that was well-established. I thought we had it well-established. We could kill unborn babies. And this court all of a sudden says we can't. I mean, what do they think? That 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 life is an, an alienable right? Is that what they think? They've come up with this new idea that life is an unalienable right. Uh do, do you see the um do you see the 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 logic here? You know, there's nothing brilliant about it. Uh it is uh it's confusion, steeped in confusion. And you know what I feel about confusion. It just, uh, it it breeds ineptness. And then that's what we have here. 
this court has ruled that affirmative action in colleges is, is unconstitutional. Well, yes, because it's reverse racism. And we don't want any type of racism. You know, so we should be getting rid of DEI. Oh, oh, speaking of DEI. Oh, look at this. Did you oh, this is so rich. Did you see this? All right, we're gonna leave uh the Berkeley Law School and Justice Soto Sotomayor. And we're gonna go to uh, we're gonna go back to Harvard. Oh man, Harvard is just struggling. They are struggling to stay out of the news right now. Harvard is the new Oregon. You remember there was a period of time where Oregon just couldn't stay out of the news academically. Uh, you know, their their education out there in Oregon is in shambles, and they just could not stay out of the news. And Harvard is the new Oregon. Harvard cannot stay out of the news. All right, listen to this. In case you haven't seen this, this came out just, just I don't know, yesterday, maybe the day before. Sherry Ann Charleston is Harvard's first ever chief diversity and inclusion officer. All right, first ever. First ever chief diversity and inclusion officer. But but guess what? It, guess what? Oh, it just, it, you know, she she's taking after her mentor, Claudine Gay. Uh, Sherry Ann Charleston, the first ever chief diversity and inclusion officer, plagiarized parts of every publication she's ever written, at least 40 times in total claims an anonymous complaint filed with Harvard and which was first reported by the Washington Free Beacon. Oh, here we go, kids. She quoted or paraphrased nearly a dozen other academics without proper attribution in her 2009 dissertation submitted to the University of Michigan, the complaint says. Also, Charleston's only peer-reviewed journal article, written in 2014 with her husband, lifted parts from a 2012 study her husband published, presenting it as new research, according to the complaint. I mean, her husband doesn't mind. He probably gave, yeah, go ahead and do this. I mean, it's fine. We're just going to call it new research. Her husband, LeVar Charleston, is the Deputy Vice Chancellor for Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Charleston herself was previously assistant vice provost for diversity, equity, and inclusion and chief affirmative action officer at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So they have they had chief affirmative action officers. They had chief racism officers. Ah, in 2014... I'm sorry, in the 2014 article, which was published in the Journal of Negro Education, even interviews with Black computer science students from the 2012 study showed up word for word. All right, so in, in her 2014 article, which she she borrows from her husband's research and calls it as her own brand new research, she includes word for word uh um, statements from computer science students, interviews with black com computer science students from this 2012 study show up word for word. 
The 2014 article also listed the same methods, findings, and descriptions of survey subjects as the older study that her husband did two years earlier, according to the Beacon's analysis. The 2014 paper appears to be entirely counterfeit. Peter Wood, the head of the National Association of Scholars, told the Beacon. Wood said, this is research fraud, pure and simple. But this is Harvard. But this is this is Harvard, and this is what Harvard does. Uh, they become a joke. One significant problem is the fact that the 2014 publication not only appeared to copy parts of the 2012 study, it also added two new authors. You got to be kidding me, Sherry Ann Charleston and Gerlando Jackson, two brand new authors who had nothing to do with the original study. But 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 here's the kicker. As the chief diversity officer for Harvard, Charleston served on the presidential search committee that ultimately named Claudine Gay as its president. And there you go. There you go, friends. They could not call Claudine Gay out for plagiarizing because they're doing the same thing. All of them there. We need to start checking the work of every single person in a position of authority at Harvard. I bet they've plagiarized. Or I, I bet they have. I, I bet they have. Okay, that reminds me. How much time do I have here real quick uh, before we run out? Hedge fund billionaire Ken Griffin is calling out Harvard. Uh, he's donated more than $500 million to Harvard University over the years. Uh, he, of course, has halted contributions to his alma mater, Harvard, and claimed the elite school produces whiny snowflakes. This guy is a genius. Uh, I, let's see if we have time to play this clip. He's at a conference this past week in in, um, in Miami. It's the MFA Network Miami Conference. And listen to to his comments here. We've got time before before the show ends today. Uh, let's pause for a moment and take a listen. The real question is: Is will America's and I'm going to I'm going to choose a word here carefully? America's elite university get back to the roots of educating American children, young adults, to be the future leaders of our country? Or are they gonna maintain being lost in the wilderness of microaggressions, a DEI agenda that seems to have no real end game, and, and just being lost in the wilderness? Like, which way are we gonna pick? Are we gonna educate the, the future members of the House and the Senate and the leaders of IBM? Or are we going to educate a group of, of young men and women who are just caught up in a rhetoric of oppressor and oppressy and this is not fair and frankly just like whiny snowflakes? Like where are we going with education in elite schools in America? And that's a really big issue. So there it is. Uh, hedge fund billionaire Ken Griffin. He asked this question of Harvard, and, and he refers to Harvard as uh, America's elite university. And he says, will America's elite university get back to their roots of educating American children, young adults, to be the future leaders of our country, or are they going to maintain being lost in the wilderness of microaggressions? or a DEI agenda that seems to have no real end game. 
All right, are they will Harvard go back to their roots of true education? Or are they going to maintain status quo? Uh, this is what Ken Griffin wants to know. Uh, he, he says, are we going to educate the future members of the House and Senate and leaders of IBM? Are we going to educate a group of young men and women who are caught up in a rhetoric of oppressor and oppressee? Or, or having this attitude, of, hey, this is not fair. Or frankly, just whiny snowflakes. That's what he calls them. Because he knows that's what we're educating. I mean, that's what we're not educating true thinkers. When we have a group of, you know, 1,300 strong at at the, you know, California Berkeley Law School applauding the justice when she says the originalists on the court are are, are thinking up new ways to in, interpret the Constitution. Well, that's an oxymoron. They're originalists. You know, they, they, they agree with the original uh, language. They're not thinking up new ways, but you've got, you know, these snowflakes out there applauding that because they're not true deep thinkers. They're not listening to to, to what's being said to them and, and putting some thought to it. And, and this is what, you know, Ken Griffin wants to know. Will our elite university, Harvard, the, the elite of the elite, will they go back to their roots? And will they really truly begin to educate our young people? In, in, in ways that they used to? Are they just going to maintain the status quo of snowflakeism? That's a great question. We're glad uh, Griffin's out there asking it, and we're going to we're going to support him in that asking. All right, but that's all the time we have for today, America. Thank you for joining me. Encourage your friends and family to get on the Dean's List. Let's unite to renovate the age.